0: Today's readings from Mark 11, 12 to 25, it's also in the Rishi. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you ever again, and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And when he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses.
1: Mark chapter 11. Um, We've been working through the Gospel of Mark as a community over over well well over a year now. We've sort of stopped and started, you know. But um, the reason why we're doing this is because we want to take seriously... Uh, the words of Jesus and his actions and, and his call to us as his people. You know, if, we're, if we're a community centred around Jesus and the gospel, we've got to know who Jesus is and, and what does he say and then therefore what does he call us to be and do. And so that's why we're taking such uh, care as we go through. Um, and uh, what we're going to be looking at today then is this rather sort of curious story of Jesus and his sort of what we can describe as shenanigans in the, in the temple. Um, and, uh, and all this stuff about a fig tree. So what we're going to actually be looking at today, I think this text really just points us towards uh, three things. Uh, number one, uh, it points us towards the problem of fake religion. Uh, secondly, it sort of reveals to us the traits of fake religion. And thirdly and finally then, the, the uh, alternative to fake religion. And hopefully these things will become clear as we, as we work through. The problem of fake religion, and the problem of fake religion is this: it is all show, and no fruit. Do we have fake religion today? Yes, we do. Uh, it is damaging. It is damaging to those inside the church who who look and, and mistake sometimes uh, what happens, and, and they think they're good with God, and and actually what they're buying into is fake religion. But it's, of course, damaging to those outside the church who, who, who look in and who look at this bunch of who they perceive to be, I'm not pointing to you, by the way, but of course, but uh, who they perceive to be hypocrites. They, 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 they look all good and proper and prim on a Sunday morning and they sing all these songs, and then when they go out to uh, work and, and whatever they do for the rest of it, the, they're just like the rest of us. There's no difference. So, so fake religion is very damaging to those inside the church and to those looking on from outside the church the church is all show and no fruit. And so uh, what um, Nicole has just read to us here is a a section of Mark's gospel, which is kind of like a a sandwich. Um, And we've we've come across this little uh, technique before that the gospel writer Mark uses. And there's a central story and it's sort of flanked by a bigger story or a greater story wrapped around it, you know, like a story within a story. And we've seen this a few times already. And, and the point that Mark uh, brings to us each time he does this sandwich technique is that uh, both of those parts talk to each other. You know, you've got the bread and the meat, and it all, all, all comprises of, of one uh, teaching that he's trying to get across. So the first part of this, you know, I suppose we could say the first slice of bread in that sandwich is then from verses 12 through to 14. And it's this curious uh, engagement that Jesus has with this poor old fig tree. Um, we, we've just uh, backed up a few, few, few moments and, and, and we, we, we've seen Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem. He makes his official arrival. Uh, it's called the triumphal entry. Although as we saw last week, it wasn't really that triumphal. It was all a bit of an anti-climax because Jesus was teaching that there's more to come. Right, this is not my moment. My moment is yet to come. And we know that that happens when he goes to the cross. Uh, But anyway, the triumphal entry has happened. He went home to Bethany, it says. And so this takes place on the following day. See that verse 12? On the the following day, when they came from Bethany, it was just a couple of miles away from the capital city, um, this engagement happened. And it says there in verse 12 that Jesus was hungry. And of course he's hungry, because he's a human being, just like us. We get hungry, right? And and so therefore, Jesus was hungry. And so he saw this uh, fig tree up ahead, and he went to it, hoping to find something uh, to eat, you know, to pick and eat. Um, as they walked by, and it says in verse 13, he found nothing but leaves. And Mark tells us, well, it's just not the season. And so Jesus, finding no fruit there, curses the tree and says, may no one ever eat from you again, and then moves on. And it all seems a bit harsh. And we, we, you know, we can jump forward uh, briefly to verse 20, yeah, verse 20. And as they passed by the day after, they saw the fig tree had withered away from its roots. What's going on? Uh, just a bit of horticulture. I'm sure you came to church today expecting a, a mini horticulture lesson. Uh, for those of you who did, you will not be disappointed. Um, but this is important to help us understand what's going on here. Um, according to those who know about figs, uh, figs are ordinarily harvested from mid August uh, through to mid October, summertime. I guess uh, there's no surprise there. But what happens to fig trees after they've been harvested, after the fruit you know, has, has largely been used up? Uh, fig trees instantly start to sprout and bud in winter, which is unusual for us because we often expect, you know, spring and the, the first signs, that's when uh, stuff happens on our trees. But, but in that situation, in these trees, they start to bud in winter and they start to produce these little budlets, there's a Hebrew word for it, pagim, uh, And so these little uh, like knuckles of, of like early fruit start to appear from March to April around the time when Jesus um, was, was there. Uh, and all this was happening on, uh, under, under him. And so uh, these little uh, nuggets, or pagim, as, as the Hebrew word is, uh, are, are sort of developed buds that at various stages of the maturation process. It's not the full fruit yet, but it's sort of uh, on its way there. And, and so the next thing the tree then does after these little budlets is they put out the leaves, and when you see the leaves, that symbolizes that the fruit is on its way. All right, it's coming. So even uh, if... This is out of season for the, the mature fruits. Uh, one can still expect to go to a, a, a bush that's in, in leaf and find some of these little pagines. You know, it would be like, I suppose, the equivalent to eating a, um, a, a sultana or something like that, you know, a, a little tasty snack, um, which could be eaten. And we see this in other parts of the scripture, actually. You know, it talks about this. Um, you know, the, this, this possibility. Anyway, the point here is that Jesus got to this tree expecting to find something. He wasn't expecting the, the main figs, but he expected to find something to eat. And he got to the tree, and he realized it was all show and no fruit. There was nothing. Not even some of those little nuggets of tasty, delicious um, buds. And then he enters Jerusalem. And then he starts kicking over tables. And we see that in verse 15 through to 19. He, he, He walked not just into any old marketplace, but he walked into the temple. The temple. All right, the place where uh, it stands at the center of the Jewish faith, stands at the center of the, the, the city. He walks into the temple. It, you know, the, they understood that as the dwelling place of God. That's God's house. And, and of course, pilgrims would have flocked to the temple. They would have flocked there for worship. They would have you know, come, come to bring their offerings. And yet, as we read in verses 15 through 19, the scenes were more, not so much like a worship service. The scenes were more like a marketplace that Jesus found when he went there. Kind of like a shopping mall or something like that. It tells us there were buyers and sellers, there were animals which would have been alive at the time. Um, there were there were money changers, there would have been priests walking around, you know, taking sacrifices into the priestly section. There would have been temple workers, you know, guiding people along the, just just follow the path and you know, and all the rest of it. There would have been worshippers there trying to, to engage with God and, and, and come into his presence and so so, so forth. Um, it would have been real hustling, you know, hustling for space. There would have been bartering, trying to get the best price for the best animals. All that was happening in the temple. And what uh, we see Jesus doing is nothing short of astonishing. It says in verse 15 that he drove out the cellars. He overturned the tables at the Bureau de Change. He, he kicked over the seats of the merchants and in verse 16 he says he started to try and block the passage of people who are, who are probably carrying their sacrifices into the, the next area, the next section, the stuff they've just bought and taking it through. He tried to stop all of that. In short, he was trying to put a spanner in the works. He was saying, this is not right. This is not it. Right? His actions say that this is not good. Stop this right now. Uh, why, why? Why did Jesus um, do this? And, and rather, why, why did he try and put a spanner in the works of the, the worship machine that was taking place? Well, he, he, he teaches in verse 17, and, and, and we've got a couple of quotes that he, he uses. Uh, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. All this activity, says Jesus. All this noise. Uh, all this trade. All this commerce. It's all show and no fruit. So much machinery. You know? So, so much happening. But this is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a place where, where people can, can worship me and uh, uh, worship God and, and come and encounter him. It's supposed to meet with God. So you can see the problem of Fake religion—it's all biz and no basis. It's all faff and no foundation. I could go on, I've run out of options. Um, but the problem is this: fake religion looks the part, right? Uh, it's kind of impressive. There's all these structures and mechanisms. There's activities. There's stuff happening, like the fig tree. It, it looks like it's growing. It looks like it's healthy. But when you sort of peek between the the the, the leaves, you realise there's nothing going on. There's no riches. There's no fruit. And There's nothing of eternal value being generated. As a church, as the church in general, as I hinted out at the start, we can easily fall into this same trap, can we not? All show and no fruit. And it's a snare. Right? We, can, we, can, we, can, we can become really busy doing lots of stuff, activity, good stuff, not necessarily bad. I had, a, I had an advert come through my door a few uh, weeks ago from a local church inviting me to join the handbell group. And um, for those of you who don't know what a handbell is, it's literally a bell that you hold in your hands. And uh, you ring it at the designated time. And uh, the idea is there's a whole group of people, with, each with their own bells in their hands, and uh, when someone says, you do that. And uh, if everybody's playing well, you make a nice tune. And that's, that's pretty much maybe do a gig or two, uh, some handbell gigs, whatever. I'm sure there's a great market for all that. And anyway, I, in fact, you know, I, I was brought up in the Church of England, and I know all about handbells, so that's why I'm able to tell, tell you about this. And um, I, I was actually in a handbell group myself as a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> what a catch. So... Um, do you want to join the handbell group? In fact, the same church, they produce a really wonderful production, a really chunky magazine that they uh, very kindly put through our door um, a couple of times a year. Wonderful stuff they're doing. And when you open the pages of this glossy magazine, they've obviously invested a lot of time in, you, you, can, you can learn about their walking groups, their coffee mornings, uh, their toddler groups, the bird watching society, the photography class, the historical society. You could join the choir if you want. The drama group, the youth group. Wonderful things. I'm sure the folks who produce this and run all this stuff are very sincere, very nice people indeed, sincerely trying to help and do something good. And, you know, maybe, maybe a different church or a different sort of type of church, they will differ in the forms of activity that they will do and they think is important and crucial in the community. They will do different religious works, but the point is this it is possible to have all the machinery, all the activity, all the groups, all the busyness, and produce no fruit. No no genuine discipleship is actually taking place. No, No transformative repentance is being lived out by the people in the community. There's no growth in faith. There's no sense of drawing closer to God. There's no sense of his power among us as we meet. All that stuff's crowded out by handbell groups and bird watching. The problem with fake religion is it's all show and no fruit. It's a danger. So let's move on then and think to ourselves. Okay, fine, right. Fake religion is not good. No one wants fake religion. I think. Um, what does it look like? How do we know? How do we know it when we see it? Um, and I think there's three, three traits that we can pick up from the text here, particularly about how Jesus uh, operates in the temple court. Uh, three traits of fake religion. So here's the first one. Fake religion commodifies. Right? It commodifies. That means it, it takes that which is sacred, that which is holy, that which is of the kingdom, uh, belongs to the kingdom of God, and it reduces these things to a series of buy and sell. Okay? We see this in the temple courts. It's practically turned into a marketplace. It's a place to make money, and they, they did have a legitimate reason to be there. Let's, let's you know, give, give credit where credit is due. These 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 exchanges and these money, you know, um, uh, sellers were there providing a service. They were providing animals that would be purchased to be used in the sacrificial system as part of people's worship to God uh, in in that time. And so whether you were a pilgrim from a, a, a distant land or whether you're a local worshipper, uh, most likely you would have acquired an animal from one of these sellers rather than drag it all the way across from Arabia or wherever you're from, and uh, you would purchase it there and then to be used in worship. And likewise with the, the money changes, um, you couldn't just use normal money in, in temple offerings. You know, you couldn't give God stuff That has been, you know, uh, has got the face of Caesar on it, or the face of some other. No, this is God's money, and so what they would have done is exchange their sort of uh, money from the world, or money from out there, with uh, what they call the temple shekel, which is which is effectively a coin which had no face on it at all, no words, and the idea is that you would use that because that's uh, you know that's special, that's given to God, and you'd use that rather than the stuff from from the loose change from your pocket. So they're there for, for, uh, for legitimate reasons, uh, providing a service. But Jesus says here in verse 17, despite all that, he says, you've made this a den of robbers. Your heart is not for worship. Your heart is to make a buck or two. Make some cash. No doubt the uh, religious council would have taken a cut themselves. You've made it all about the money, says Jesus. Of course, money is important, Right? Uh, resources are important we get that but fake religion commodifies it commercializes fake religion is more concerned about money and prosperity than the worship of God Um, and and so I think when churches run like a business when it's all about the bottom line when it becomes indistinguishable from stuff that takes place in the marketplace or the shopping center then it has been commodified as fake religion so, the first trait is commodified, commodification. Second trait of fake religion is it restricts, it's restrictive. And um, it flows out of the first part. Just imagine in this, uh, in this vast area, about 35 acres um, in the outermost part of the temple complex, 35 acres. But just the noise in there, you know, the, the hustle and bustle. The noise of the people, uh, some singing, some praying, some shouting and chatting. The the sellers from their stalls, you know, offering their wares. Uh, Even the animals themselves, probably bleating and cooing and mooing. And The smell. But where does all this take place? It takes place in an area of the temple called the Court of Gentiles. Uh, It's the only place in the entire temple complex that would be accessible to non-Jews which I think would be the majority of us in here. We would only, if we were to go to the temple in those days, we would only be able to access that outside bit. And it was becoming like a marketplace. It was supposed to be the place where pilgrims could travel from afar, outsiders, God-fearers, or whatever they're called. They could go and worship Yahweh. It's the closest they could get. They could go and pray and they could go and worship him and just come close to the temple. So look then at verse 17 again, and when Jesus teaches them, and says to them, is it not written, quoting from Isaiah, my house shall be a house called a house of prayer for all the nations? And he's quoting from Isaiah 56, where uh, the great Old Testament prophet envisages this, this great moment, this great day, when uh, all people of all nations are gathered together to worship God, foreigners, Exiles, eunuchs, Gentiles, misfits, all come together, all can access the presence of God and love Him and enjoy Him forever. Then the, the temple was supposed to model this. Right? It was supposed to be a light to the, the nations. And this angered Jesus because the outsiders, the non-Jews who had a legitimate reason to be there were being restricted they were being blocked by all the bleating lambs and the money changers and all the hustle bustle of the marketplace in the place of worship it's supposed to be a light to the nations what is all this? see fake religion restricts the kingdom of God from those who need it those people need to enter that loving transformative powerful kingdom of God, and they are kept away from it by fake religion and what we've seen so far in our studies time and again through the gospel of mark that that entering the kingdom of gods is not an easy thing okay so in some ways entering the kingdom of god is restrictive in the sense that it's not easy it comes at a cost and sometimes it's a cost too too much for people to pay and they don't want to pay it so they don't you know, the, the, the reason why it's so costly is because we're called to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. And that's an uncomfortable place to be. And so many people don't want to enter the kingdom of God. But aside from that, when I say restriction, I, I, I'm not saying, therefore, that we should say nothing about the gospel, that we should preach nothing about the difficulty of following Jesus. I, I'm not saying that. But when we're talking here about fake religion, how it restricts the kingdom of God from those who need it, We need to make sure that we're not inadvertently or even actively holding people back from the kingdom. How might we do that in the modern church? There's a thousand ways that we could do that. By our distracting activities, by our bickering and our mudslinging at one another and other people in other churches. By our strange church language that we use when we come to church. Even more terrible, our hypocritical behavior in front of those who know that we go to church and yet we live like it makes no difference. These are multiple ways how fake religion can restrict outsiders from the kingdom of God. And it's evil. It is evil. Third trait of fake religion. Ultimately, it comes to nothing. It's cursed. This is where the fig tree comes in. All show no fruits. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, says Jesus. And in verse 20, they found the fig tree withered away to its roots. Totally gone. Root and branch. Yet for all the table-flipping and chair-tossing that Jesus was doing, he probably wasn't actually doing all that much damage. There's no evidence in here that he, he got arrested by guards or pushed out by the crowds, none of that. Even, I mean, his behavior here didn't even feature in his list of accusations at his trial that he would go to in a few days or weeks' time. Jesus most likely caused a bit of a stir, but then after they picked themselves up again, it was just business as usual. So what did all this achieve? Well, much like the fig tree, the point is that Jesus was making a point. Um, it was a, he was he, he was making a sign. You know, he, he came to the fig tree and said, "You're all show, no fruit. Be cursed, wither away." He came to the temple and said, "You're all show, no fruit. Be cursed, and wither away." His actions were a foretelling of what was to come, a pronouncement. This one day will happen for real, was Jesus saying effectively through tossing the tables. One day, all this stuff here, says Jesus, will be judged. It will be cursed. It will come to nothing because it's fake religion. It serves as a warning, doesn't it, to us um, today, for sure? Not to confuse our activity with real fruit. Um, we, can't, we can't think that being busy for church is real fruit. It might be. You know, it might be real fruit. Christians are called to serve, right? They're called, called to give. They're called to pour themselves out for the sake and the glory of Jesus because he poured himself out for us. But what I am saying here is that activity alone is not the basis of our faith. It cannot be. Okay? It, it will not hold up on scrutiny. In fact, Jesus teaches in another place in in Matthew chapter 7, on on, on the final day, right, when everything will be made clear and he will see everything and and everyone will will, will gather before him on what the Bible says is judgment day, uh, Jesus will say this, you know, not everybody who comes to me, says Jesus on that day and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, says Jesus, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Uh, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Uh, do we not do loads of busy stuff? Look at how much ministry we've done for you, Jesus. And he says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Who wants to hear that on that final day? when we thought all of our activity and our busyness were somehow gaining favor. I never knew you. So you see, fake religion, it just comes to nothing. It comes to nothing. So we've seen the problem of fake religion, all showing no fruit. We've seen three traits of fake religion. There are more traits, I think, but this is what we see in the scripture here. What is the alternative then to fake religion? Thirdly and finally, what is the the alternative? Do we just give up and all decide to become atheists because this is just a pile of rubbish? That is an option that some people choose. Um, Should we just abandon organized, gathered religion altogether and just live out our own personal spirituality? Is that the option when we are faced with fake spirituality? Well, I'd say no. The alternative to fake religion is real religion. It's embracing the real thing. In fact, um, we did a series together through the book of James uh, right at the beginning of lockdown, actually, uh, back in uh, uh, 2020. And um, the series was called Real Religion, and James takes us through uh, Real Religion. So if you you want want to know more, go back and listen to those online. But the alternative to fake religion is real religion. What is real religion? Uh, I'll summarise it here, I think. Um, There's multiple ways that we could summarise it, but here it goes. Real religion is faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. If you get that straight, then you have real religion. And we see it here in scripture, that's where it comes from. Real religion is faith alone. Um, It's not not working hard. It's not being nice. It's not doing nice religious activities. It is not adopting savvy business practices to grow a church. That's not it. It's faith. Verse 21. Peter was just so startled um, and so surprised it seems to be, look rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Um, he heard Jesus curse the fig tree the day before, and then surprisingly, um, it, it actually happened. Look, that fig tree has withered. And Jesus replied, have faith in God. You know, he, he's teaching Peter, look, look at what faith can do. Look at how powerful faith can be. Look at how how crucial faith is in this whole thing, Peter. In fact, he says in verse 23 you can, you can command this mountain to be, go, uh, to be thrown into the sea, and as long as there's no doubt in your heart and you just believe that God can do it, then it will happen. If you ask believing, then it will come to pass, says Jesus. It's faith alone, real religion. What has the power? Is it you? Is it your activity? Is it your best behavior? Is it your financial prudence? No, says Jesus. It is faith. Faith in God. God can do it. He can save, right? He can heal. He can restore. He can transform. Don't rest on your own powers, says Jesus, or your own ability. It won't last even if you do try. You'll end up in a mess. Rest on God and his power to achieve his purposes. That's faith. Real religion is faith alone. But real religion is faith alone in Christ alone. We were singing that a few moments ago. Um, do you see in verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them these things. You know, Jesus, Jesus wasn't often some sort of unhinged rage here. He had the presence of mind. Um, he, was, you know, he was controlled. He was purposeful. He, he did his acts, which we, we, we take to be signs of what was to come. And then he started to teach The crowd, and it says in verse 18, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. How many times have we seen that in the Gospel of Mark so far? The crowd were astonished. He teaches as one with authority, not like the teachers of the law and the scribes. And so he speaks this word of judgment on the fig tree and the word of judgment on the temple. And just as he spoke that, It happened. So too, when he spoke the word of judgment on the temple, it happened. He was declaring it was over. The word of authority that came from Jesus, because of who he is, said that this temple has served its purpose a long time ago. I'm here to fulfill it. And when he went on trial for his life in a few days or weeks' time, in Mark 14, Jesus was accused of teaching that he will destroy this temple And in three days, he will build another. Of course, the temple that Jesus was referring to here was not the bricks and mortar of the temple of Herod, but it was his own body. When Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple and raise it up in three days, he was referring to his death and his resurrection. Um, The dwelling place of God, you see, had shifted from the temple to a person, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He was the the true temple. And Jesus is saying, that temple is going to be judged and condemned and broken down. And so when he was nailed to the cross and died a cursed death, that's what was going on. That temple was being cursed. And yet when he rose to life, Jesus declared that now God and humankind can be together forever as it was originally intended. Now it is true. Now they can live together. And it's not because of elaborate sacrifices or religious works, but in Christ alone. Real religion is shaped around Christ alone and none other. Faith alone, in Christ alone By grace alone. How do you get all this? Well, it is the goodness of God. It's grace alone. It is God's goodness towards you. That's what grace is. It's his undeserved favor. It is undeserved, meaning you don't deserve it. But you get it anyway. That is grace. God gave you his all. He gave you his Son, who died a cursed death for you so that now through faith in him you are freed, you are forgiven you are accepted, you're a child of God yes you are, by grace alone that's why he says in verse 25 because real religion is by grace alone therefore we forgive as we have been forgiven when we know it's by grace alone and not because of our own works or goodness or anything like that, we realize that there is no place in our hearts for unforgiveness. No place for arrogance. No place for cockiness. No place for hustling. You know, when you really know, grace alone, it humbles you. You, you, When you understand grace, you say, I was in a complete mess. And then Jesus saved me by grace. How else can I look down? How can I look down on anyone else? How can I think I am someone in my own eyes when I see what God has done for me? By grace alone. So let's conclude, let's draw these threads together. Um, We've seen fake religion. And we've understood the problem of fake religion, how it's so dangerous. All show and no fruit. We've seen how it looks, those three traits. And we see that real religion is faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. These two things, fake religion and real religion, are worlds apart with different kingdoms. And yet for us, they can be easily confused at a very superficial level. And so maybe as you've been sitting here listening to these things this morning, um, maybe in your heart of hearts, if you're being really honest with yourself, um, you might think something like this. There is more fake religion in me than I care to admit. I've bought into this stuff. And it's just distracted me, it's kept me away from God. Maybe that's you. And Jesus tells us that the way to enter the kingdom is by turning away from anything that will hinder us and turning to Jesus in faith. And for many of us, if arguably all of us, we have to turn away from religion and turn to Jesus. Turn away from the fake stuff and turn to truth and life himself. And when you do that, it's called repentance, when you do that, he will release you, he will save you. if you're sincere, if you're genuine, he will give you that freedom. He will give you that forgiveness. He will free you from your fake religion. Just turn to Jesus. And perhaps your response is a bit different. Maybe you are someone who has been sincerely following real religion. Faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. Amen. Um, But your faith perhaps is is waning uh, maybe it's a bit tatty um starting to show I, you know nothing like the power that he says in verse 23 that if you've got faith you can tell this mountain to move and it'll end up in the sea you've no power like that your, your faith is is maybe shrunk down maybe for you it's because fear has crept in and started to speak another message to your heart um Maybe for you, you've been too busy trying to control the angles, trying to keep God in his box, so to speak. God cannot be controlled, and yet we try and control him, we try and handle him, rather than allowing him to handle us and and giving ourselves fully to him. That's what we do sometimes. And so perhaps if you are a follower of real religion and yet you find that your faith is waning, you can ask right now for a renewal of that faith. Um, A a deepening of it. You know, that spark. It can be turned into a flame by the Holy Spirit. It can. Maybe you need to release your control on God. You need to give up your rights and give yourself to him afresh. And you can do that right now, this morning. So as a church, as a community on mission, let us pray. Let us have faith. Let us pray, God. God. Grow our church for your glory. God, grow our vision of what you can do among us. God, grow our expectancy that you can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine.